Welcome back to It Is What It Is. I'm Corbin. And I'm Anthony. And today we have some delicious meat for you all. We're talking about what makes good teams good and bad teams bad. And maybe some bad teams are good, but they're terrible. And good teams are bad, but they're also good. I don't know. It's all, it's all topsy-turvy here. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Uh, so we had talked about the individuals, what makes a, a great NBA player is their decision-making, and that uh, you can have all the talent and skill in the world, but that kind of puts people a league apart from others. So then you ask the question, what makes a team good? And whew, there's, that's a complicated question. So we wanted to look at organizations and teams kind of as social units and see if we can draw upon any resources to evaluate how good of a social unit a team is. And so I thought a great place to uh, bring, a good idea to bring in is the Chinese principles of harmony from ancient Chinese philosophy. I'm, so, excited, for uh, the, I'm excited for the Eastern cultural understanding. Yeah, me too. Get us out of Aristotle for a day. Yeah. <laughs> what a jerk. So uh, <laughs> just as some context, I'm not going to go into a whole big background, but just for some context, the early Chinese debates about society were centered around a couple of key questions. And one of them was, how do we achieve harmony uh, with the universe, with ourselves and with our society? And are humans intrinsically good or bad or neither? And trying to answer and resolve those questions and build societies based upon the answers to those questions led to some very interesting schools of thought. And so even though some of these are separated by generations, there's enough of an overlap that there was a, a healthy debate in China about which direction to go. And, and I kind of want to see if we can play out these Chinese principles with NBA teams and, and see if we can revitalize that debate. So. All right. Uh, so the first one I wanted to talk about was Taoism. And Taoism's guiding principle of how to achieve harmony is to find and strike the balance in nature. So with the principles of yin, yin and yang, you know, there's kind of opposing principles in nature that can uh, antagonize one another, but also provide balance. So if you get one principle really strong and the other one really weak, everything's going to be out of whack and that causes chaos. But if you can strike a good harmony between these two opposing principles, then you can achieve a, a balance and a harmony that resonates at every layer. So that resonates at the ecological level, at the individual level, and at the social level. So the driving principle there is nature, do what's natural. Being natural is to let things kind of take their natural course and not try to resist the natural course of things. So with that kind of explanation of a general principle, we'd like to see if we can identify teams that maybe reflect the use of this principle, one team that does it well, and one team that has bad consequences when they try to do it. The the Phil Jackson Bulls come to mind. Uh, I. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't until his Laker years that he became known as the Zen Master. Is that true? I I feel like that might have been a popular conception once he was at the Lakers, but it was in part because he had implemented some of the same things in Chicago. Yeah. Um, but the reason why I bring up the Phil Jackson Bulls, um, and I guess to a lesser extent the Lakers, uh, was because uh, I remember in The Last Dance there was this story that um, Dennis Rodman and Phil Jackson told where, like, in the middle of their, I think it was their uh, 98 season, or 99 season, uh, 
Dennis just couldn't, he just didn't want to play anymore. He like lost all motivation and he really just needed a break from the game. And he was a big gambler and he's like, I just need to go to Vegas to like, you know, de-stress and party for a few days. And uh, Phil Jackson basically just let him go. And a lot of the guys on the team were kind of upset about that. I think Jordan being number one. Um, but Phil said, hey, listen, we got to trust Dennis to, you know, be himself and trust that he's also going to come back. I'll give him the three days off, but he has to come back. And uh, they kind of, like you said, he let the team just be who they are. And of course, Dennis came back and he felt refreshed. And I think he went on a, a little tear after that. Um, and so that was kind of the embodiment of how the Bulls played. Um, and then also Phil Jackson's other teams. He's quite famous for being known for like um, understanding what all the tendencies and personalities of his team players are as, so that they can kind of like he optimizes their strengths and lets them be who they want to be without interfering with that too much so that they can all operate together uh, in harmony. That's a really good example. And uh, for a less successful example, I want to bring up a story that Jimmy Butler shared a few weeks ago. Uh, he was talking in response to questions about his time in Minnesota and Philly before going to Miami, which were both kind of rocky situations. He came under a lot of scrutiny and criticism. And so they asked him what went wrong in Philly. They seemed to have this stacked team and, and couldn't win. And he shared, you know, I, I walked in and I knew that I had this reputation of being kind of a jerk and, and bossy. And so I, I didn't want to be that. I wanted to give them a chance to bring me into their culture. And we sat down to watch film and, and Brett Brown's there and Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. And so we got all the superstars in a room watching, watching tape with coach and nobody's saying anything. We're all just watching the tape and I'm looking around like waiting for some kind of instruction or guidance or tips, nothing. And then they walk out of the tape session and he's like, what was that? What, what did we just waste our time doing? And the impression I got was that uh, from that story, kind of by implication is that Brett Brown is a coach brought in these superstars that are going to be the key points of the offense and defense and kind of let them draw the conclusions that they could from the tape that would they could then act upon in the ways that they wanted to. So it kind of felt like a hands-off approach. Let the star players be stars and they can work it out among themselves. And so there's that, you know, let players be who they are and who they want to be. But we know that that didn't turn out well at all. There there just never seemed to be strong chemistry with the Sixers and broke up with within less than a year. So the next school of thought that I want to talk about is legalism. And uh, it's pretty straightforward from the name. Here the idea is that, uh, and one of the guiding ideas is that humans are intrinsically bad. They're they're selfish. They're, they're not going to cooperate very well. And so what you need are really clear, strict rules with strong enforced punishments. So the goal is to get people to act against their bad nature to contribute beneficially to society. And here the the idea is that we need a ruler who's wise and shrewd and knows how to get people to do what they're supposed to do and uses whatever means necessary to make that happen. And uh, so their legalism is kind of driven by law and punishment. Oh, I got, a, I got a great example yeah, for yeah. you. Uh, so okay. I'm reminded of the Pat Riley heat. I mean, and, and it, this is prevalent throughout his whole tenure as the president of the team. 
Uh, most famous example I can think of is um, when Antoine Walker was on the team. This was like their championship season or the year after that. Uh, he had come into camp overweight. Um, and in the NBA, you're not terribly overweight, but uh, the Heat is famous for having like a body fat requirement. And they also have, I think they need to hit like certain cardio benchmarks. Um, and so Antoine Walker came into camp over his body fat allotment and he was suspended for like the first few weeks of the season until he could get under the requirement and then they would let him play. And so that was like a very team enforced uh, rule system that no other team in the NBA has. And I think Eric Spolster still keeps that philosophy because he understands how much, uh, you know, how much your body plays into it. And they really want to try and maintain physical peak health. Um, but I thought it, I think it happened again, like two or three years ago. I can't remember who did it, but it, I know it popped up again recently. Maybe it was Dion Waiters when he was on the team. I was going to say, was it Waiters? Yeah. yeah. It was probably Waiters. <laughs> He's a chubster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, the Heat might have had some success. Uh, <laughs> LeBron said he learned a lot about winning by, by going there. And I wonder how much of that was um, not just learning how to win with other players and with veteran experience, but also organizationally what's, what's necessary to get a team on track and keep them disciplined. Um, I think a, a maybe more notorious example of this and, and less successful was the uh, Boylan Bulls, Jim Boylan in uh, Chicago, who lost his job just a little bit ago, <laughs> but for a couple of years uh, was just known for being really hard on his players, uh, had very strict expectations for their practice regimen, for their game performance, and if they didn't perform well, would call extra practices and have them do suicides and things that typically at the professional level level is considered beneath these pro players. So he was really treating them more like a youth league or, or high school or college team with strong disciplinary measures. And uh, that didn't, didn't turn out too well. There's a couple player revolt meetings where they basically voted no confidence and tried to let the organization know they weren't happy. And now he's out. So... Yeah, that's a lot of, and uh, here's the, the early version of hippies. But the other way, why do we keep taking wars with all by trying to take resources? Instead, let's have a really good society, and instead of to compete with us, maybe they'll want to join us. So we can conquer love by by bringing into the fold more uh, people and territories. But it wasn't just a peace, love, and happiness. Uh, Motsu was very able to recognize that there are going to be obstacles. There are going to be people who decide to try and take advantage of, of charity and and a mild manner. He said, you know, be, be loving, be kind, but build your walls. Make sure that your city has good defenses and prepare for battle. So it's a very pragmatic approach. Let's, let's uh, be kind to one another. Let's, let's enjoy what we're doing and, and play music and, and have a good thriving society, but be ready in case somebody tries to invade you, uh, be, be defensive. So with that kind of a combination between universal autism, do you have an example of a team that, that... Yeah, the first one that comes to mind is the the Durant, Curry, Clay, uh, Green, Warriors. And, I, you know, it probably goes back before Durant even joined the team. They always seemed to... Uh, once Kerr became the coach, and this is, like, definitely post-Kerr, because Mark Jackson um, was a very rigid kind of person. Uh, but 
when her became the coach, the players started to, you know, at least, you know, in news outlets, they would say how much more fun they were having and that basketball was fun again. And they certainly played that way. I mean, Curry took off as, like, you know, one of the two best players in the NBA and uh, essentially how they recruited Durant to join the Emmy. But he was in friendship with those guys, having played with them in the Olympics. And they basically was like, hey, it's really fun over here. Come join us. And he you know, even openly talked about how, how much fun he had after joining the Warriors. Who knows what happened in that last year? <laughs> that's good. I think I'm really struggling. I think we have something that works. That's the Lob City Clippers. So there's a team that was a lot of fun to watch. And it looked like they were playing together a bit. So I'm talking about early DeAndre Jordan Griffin and Chris Paul. And Lob City referring to the number of alley-oops that those guys would get. It was a lot of fun seeing both Jordan and, and Griffin dunk on people and and just get the crowd energized. But they never seemed to be able to get much success out of the regular season. I think they only went to the second round once and really couldn't seem to get into the mode for playoff basketball. There's injury reasons for that too, so maybe this is an unfair example. But when Doc Rivers um, kind of took over the home, one thing he emphasized was, we can't play like a video game. Like it's a lot of fun to do alley-oops and dunk and run the fast break, but we need to focus on winning and beating the other team. And so kind of recognizing that that uh, just having a good time and, and enjoying yourself uh, is, is not going to be effective for, for that organization. So the fourth school of thought, and maybe the one um, most well-known to a lot of our audience or to some of our audience would be Confucianism. And it's hard to characterize this in an easy single principle. So I'm just going to call it a sense of belonging or vision. But the idea is that what, what we need is not one attitude or one perspective, but rather that each individual in society knows what their roles are and plays those roles appropriately. So children, respect your parents. Uh, employees, follow the rules and do your work and do what your employers ask of you. But employers, treat your employees with kindness and provide them the energy and resources so that they can be productive. So it's kind of uh, a lot of different principles depending on what role you're playing at any particular time. And one person can play multiple roles, right? I can be uh, a son, a father, a friend, a rival. You know, I, I can have civic leadership and all of these roles ask different things of me. But if I know how I belong, how I fit into society, and I know what those expectations are for those various roles, then I can participate to my fullest capacity without rocking the boat. So with that kind of sense of all the pieces moving together in their appropriate ways and everybody knowing what their role is, do you have any examples for a team that exemplified that? Well, if you don't mind, um, we've been playing good cop, bad cop, and I would like to take the role of the bad cop in this one because I have a really good bad example. Yeah, I thought you might. I just didn't, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about this one. Yeah, I think uh, an obvious one that comes to mind is the Spurs. Uh, Popovich has had this reputation. And uh, first time in 22 years that the Spurs are not in the playoffs. And uh, basically since Pop started, I think this is his first or second time ever to not be in the playoffs. And that, of course, coincided with Duncan's rise to the NBA and being one of the best power forwards of all time. But he was able to bring the best out of players. We know that Kawhi Leonard now is in the top three to five players in the NBA. And he was not expected to be that high of a draft pick, but within his first two years was already uh, finals MVP and making a huge impact on the Spurs. We know that he got Manu Ginobili, who was an Olympian champion 
in Argentina to play as a bench player <laughs> and to basically take the sixth man role and help lead the, the second squad. And he thrived, you know, probably going to be a Hall of Famer. Tony Parker, uh, a small undersized guard, was able to utilize his skills and, and become a Hall of Famer. Uh, likely, you know, all these players were pretty much expecting to to make the ballots. But it wasn't just the stars. We had people like Jonathan Simmons, who, who, <laughs> right? Jonathan Simmons came out of nowhere and was putting up 20 points a game in a role where he could uh, play some strong defense, get a lot of transition baskets. Pop knew how to utilize his strengths and put him into the into the positions where he would succeed. Patty Mills, a backup point guard who has thrived in that position and helped have some explosive offensive games. Just it seems like he knows how to make uh, random role players suddenly turn into starter quality or even better players. And I think um, to your point of culture, like Pop definitely sets the tone, but you can't have a culture without the whole team. And it's there's a lot of you know big stories of uh, Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, and Tony Parker setting the stage like we're not above the level of work that's required of the role players and the rookies, so we're gonna do it too, and that way everybody bides into the system. And they're kind of um, you know top to bottom from the president of the organization to the last assistant coach on the team to the you know, last player on the bench, that everybody buys into the system. So they all understand the importance of their roles. And it allows them to kind of like not only maximize their effectiveness, but, you know, play better than the sum of their parts in all facets of it. Yeah. Now, time for you to be the bad cop. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, a perfect segue into the, this really bad team, my favorite team, unfortunately. Um, and the example that I'm going to go with is the Phil Jackson-led Knicks, which I guess in a third layer is a full circle because he was the first person that we mentioned. <laughs> yeah. um, it's great that he makes the list twice. Once is a good example, once is a bad example. Right. Um, and the reason why I picked the Phil Jackson Knicks, I mean, it's still prevalent in the organization, but when Phil Jackson came on board, he was insistent on instilling a culture in the organization. And everything that came out in the news that year was all about developing culture. And you would hear it from the players, you'd hear it from coaches, you'd hear it from the front office, uh, but nothing ever gelled. And it was kind of obvious right out of the gate that um, this kind of goes back to the the Taoism perspective too. It was like, uh, even if you instill this culture, the players still have to buy in to some extent. And so he is famous for the triangle offense, and he tried to instill the triangle offense philosophy into the organization. And on you know on paper, that was like, yeah, we, this team needs an identity. Um, and the players were a bit apprehensive about that. And I think that initial problem right there is what led to the downfall because um Mello would outwardly say hey i want to you know i want to buy into the system but then he would do things on the court that were contrary to that and mm. um that led to coaching rotations that didn't quite fit in the philosophy it led to trades that didn't quite fit in the philosophy it led to draft choices that were short-sighted because you're drafting players not for talent or skill but because of whether they would fit into the system or not 
And um, all of that led to this disaster of, you know, the Knicks winning 17, 22, and then 17 games again. Um, and then they picked Derek Fisher as a head coach who only knew the triangle. Uh, and he would only let him coach the triangle, fired him after a year. Then they hired Jeff Hornacek, who could coach, who demonstrated that he could coach a winning system in Phoenix, forced him into the triangle. And of course, they didn't win very much, fired him. And then ultimately, Phil Jackson hired Kurt Rambis, who was like his triangle disciple with the Lakers, who couldn't coach in Minnesota. And all the Knicks fans were horror, horror, you know, terrorized at this idea. And again, he couldn't coach the Knicks into success. And he still had, like, Jeff Hornacek was a bit more freewheeling, but Kurt Rambis was very rigid in his structure. Rotations didn't make sense. Players were not happy. And so you get, like, this uh, Confucianism gone bad scenario. That might make a good movie, too. (laughs) (laughs) And at uh, at least at the end of all that, they were able to pick up Kevin Durant in free agency. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the question that seems natural to come out of this, we've got all these debating schools of thought and we've given some examples of both. But so which principle is the one that gets you the most success? What's the best principle for organizing your team culture? And I hope that we've kind of demonstrated that any one of these principles or maybe combination of principles can work for a team. But you have to find the principles that work for the pieces that you have. You can't force a culture or a set of principles on individuals who are, are not willing to, to go with that culture. So it's, it's a matter of fit, I think, between the principles and the, the players, the, the persona. For all of the GMs out there who are listening to us trying to understand which culture and philosophy to ingrain into your organization, um, there is no right answer. You have to basically like analyze your system and determine which piece makes the best fit and maybe parts of these uh, work in tangent with each other in conjunction with each other. Um, And if you don't like that answer, well, it is what it is.